When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. The Tolland Man by Seamus Heaney Some day I will go to Aarhus to see his peat-brown head, the mild pods of his eyelids, his pointed skin cap. In the flat country nearby where they dug him out, his last gruel of winter seeds caked in his stomach, naked except for the cap, noose and girdle, I will stand a long time. Bridegroom to the goddess, she tightened her torque on him and opened her fen, those dark juices working him to a saint's kept body. Trove of the turf cutter's honeycombed workings, now his stained face reposes at Aarhus. I could risk blasphemy, consecrate the cauldron bog our holy ground, and pray him to make germinate the scattered, ambushed flesh of laborers, stocking the corpses laid out in the farmyards, tell-tale skin and teeth, flecking the sleepers of four young brothers, trailed for miles along the lines. Something of his sad freedom as he rode the tumbrel should come to me, driving, saying the names Tolland, Grabal, Nebelgard, watching the pointing hands of country people, not knowing their tongue. Out here in Jutland, in the old man-killing parishes, I will feel lost, unhappy, and at home. And I didn't really want to do a preface to that poem, uh, and I'm not really quite sure what to say now, except that uh, this will be the first of three poems from Seamus Heaney's 1972 book wintering out. Uh, if we recall, uh, I believe it was in 1968 or 1969 that he mentions reading uh, P.V. Glob's book uh, about the bog bodies of uh, Iron Age Europe. And throughout the poems that I've read up until now, uh, he has been approaching what is buried, what is underneath, what is underground, um, 
And as I mentioned in a previous episode, uh, reading from an interview with Seamus Heaney, he also sees the underground as being uh, a place of creativity. Uh, darkness is not necessarily a negative thing. As I read in the end of his poem, Personal Helican, uh, the narrator of the poem says, I rhyme to see myself staring down into a well. I rhyme to see myself to set the darkness echoing. And uh, in a way, uh, this poem, The Tolland Man, which took three or four years from the reading of uh, P.V. Glob's book uh, to reach print, um, it is also just looking ahead, as I think this collection does, to Seamus Heaney's next collection called North in 1975. Uh, I am sort of focusing on the uh, the darker in the negative sense uh, of Heaney's poetry. I, I see that now. Uh, the more merely violent ones or merely uh, sad and apparently uh, hopeless ones as you'll see in the next poem uh, for tomorrow called Limbo. Uh, it's very easy and uh, I can see it myself and I agree with it sometimes that uh, what perhaps made Heaney so popular was that he was careful. He would probably hate to hear anyone say that, but there was a sense about him that uh, uh, would not risk too much, it seemed like. Um, but I think he hits the note uh, straight on the head here. He's uh, imagining going to Jutland where he will feel lost, unhappy, and at home. Uh, those three, uh, those three words, lost, unhappy, and at home, seem perfect to me sometimes if you're trying to describe uh, the life or the mind of uh, of a poet, uh, either trying to conjure up the Iron Age, um, finding himself or herself attached to something so unlike the modern world and wondering why they feel pulled in that direction, or just uh, the loneliness of having the impulse to write poetry or be creative at all. I think he hits the note right there. Um, and I'll leave it there for now. Limbo by Seamus Heaney Fishermen at Bally Shannon netted an infant last night, along with the salmon. An illegitimate spawning, a small one thrown back to the waters. But I'm sure as she stood in the shallows, ducking him tenderly till the frozen knobs of her wrists were dead as the gravel, 
He was a minnow with hooks, tearing her open. She waded in under the sign of the cross. He was hauled in with the fish. Now limbo will be a cold glitter of souls through some far briny zone. Even Christ's palms unhealed, smart and cannot fish there. First Calf by Seamus Heaney It's a long time since I saw the afterbirth strung on the hedge, as if the wind smarted and streamed bloodshot tears. Somewhere about, the cow stands with her head, almost outweighing her tense, sloped neck, the calf hard at her udder. The shallow bowls of her eyes tilt membrane and fluid. The warm plaque of her snout gathers a growth round moist nostrils. Her hide stays warm in the wind. Her wide eyes read nothing. The semaphores of hurt swaddle and flap on a bush. Well, I've gotten back to this a little late, but let's see what Seamus Heaney had to say about his 1972 book, Wintering Out. And again, uh, these question and answers come from Dennis O'Driscoll's book, Stepping Stones, Interviews with Seamus Heaney. And here we go. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, was there any discussion with fellow poets like Michael Longley and Derek Mahan about how you should negotiate the artistic and political cross-currents of the Troubles? Was there a conscious sense among you of the poet as spokesman? And Heaney says this, the role was available and to a certain extent inevitable. But the question was and remains, to what extent the role of spokesman can or should be exercised in poetry? The visiting journalists were pressing for interviews, and we all did our share of opining and explaining. And half a page down, he says, I remember John Montague wrote to me at the time, urging me to keep a diary of what was going on day by day in the ordinary life of the town, as well as in the public arena. But I didn't do it, and I regret it now. My reluctance was just one more symptom of the general wryness, the fear of inflating oneself or one's role. <coughs> Excuse me. And O'Driscoll says, you addressed this in your 
place and displacement lecture when you said that your generation of writers felt it was not necessary to deal directly with political issues because, quote, the subtleties and tolerances of their art were precisely what they had to contribute to the coarseness and intolerance of public life. Looking back, would you say that this approach continued to sustain you and the Ulster poets throughout the Troubles? Matini says, all of us, Protestant poets, Catholic poets, and don't those terms fairly put the wind up you, all of us probably had some notion that a good poem was, quote, a paradigm of good politics, end quote, a site of energy and tension and possibility, a truth-telling arena, but not a killing field, not a killing field. And without being explicit about it, either to ourselves or to one another, we probably felt that if we as poets couldn't do something transformative or creative with all that we were a part of, then it was a poor lookout for everybody. In the end, I believe that, in the end, I believe what was envisaged and almost set up by the Good Friday Agreement was prefigured in what I called our subtleties and tolerances, allowances for different traditions and affiliations in culture, religion, and politics. It all seems simple enough, but here and now I sound far more civic and clarified than I ever was at the time. <coughs> Excuse me. I have mentioned before that sometimes Heaney seems... Uh, very safe in his uh, responses about uh, politics and things like this. And uh, I realized it was kind of easy for me to say that because on the one hand, uh, Seamus Heaney had a, uh, a platform and as he got on and on in life, he had a larger and larger platform to take, take a to make his poetry uh, some sort of a stand uh, on politics or uh, to use his position in some way like that. And of course, anyone who's listened thus far will know that I do dearly wish that uh, poetry would uh, pick back up its bardic roots and become uh, more strange and possibly more popular by being more strange and more honest. But at the same time, um, it strikes me, especially with Heaney's answers here, uh, does that strangeness uh, have anything to do with politics? I think of uh, popular poets, uh, poetry that uh, made a real impact on the day-to-day -day lives of the civilization they were written for and the generations after. And you can go all the way back to Homer, who was basically a popular performer, either Homer or a handful generation of poets who ended up being put under the name Homer, or the Greek tragedians, or uh, Virgil even, or Dante, um, and on up to... Uh, somebody like W.B. Yeats, who certainly saw a place for political 
poetry or society changing poetry uh, in the world. Um, but then I ask myself, where, where are my poems about anything that has happened uh, over the last 10 years? Where is my poem about, uh, where, where are my poems about anything that happened last summer or in all of 2020? It just isn't there. Um, and so I think I understand Heaney a little better in that sense. And thinking of uh, politics in America right now, it does seem that poetry could be uh, uh, the, the, what Heaney says, the subtleties and tolerances of poetry were precisely what they had to contribute to the coarseness and intolerances of public life. Something to think about more and more. Here, uh, Heaney is asked a question about uh, the movement that he was a part of. The group of poets that uh, he befriended, uh, who called themselves <clears throat> uh, the movement, and eventually everybody sort of went their own way. Dennis O'Driscoll says, I take it that you had by then concluded that adherence to the common sense principles of the movement would retard your growth and development. And Heaney says, the thing is this, I had probably concluded nothing at that stage and haven't concluded all that much yet. I never thought of myself as linked to the movement and its principles, good or bad. Any relation I'm supposed to have had with movements comes from commentary by reviewers and critics, and from responses by myself to questions of the sort that you've just asked about Northern Irish poets and the well-made poem, the anti-modernism of the Belfast poets, etc., etc. Just by answering these questions, you contribute to the creation of a narrative. In conversations, in drink even, I and others probably came out with remarks that can be construed and constructed as part of the literary historical picture. I remember, for example, a great night of boasting and flighting with John Montague and Mac Rosenthal somewhere in the States when the battle lines were drawn on the subject of Ezra Pound. I was doing him down in an exaggerated way for scampishness and provocation. Those rogue remarks eventually began to circulate and to be taken as some kind of manifesto. I am devoted to Pound's early work. I love that first canto. He was important to me from the start, as the author of the Imagist Principles and the breaker of the heave of the pentameter. Nobody would want to deny his genius or his utter importance in the history of modern poetry. I just never studied the cantos and could never get enough reward from them to motivate me to do the work. T.S. Eliot was the one whom I entered into and who entered into me. In some instances, I just enjoyed harrying, not so much pound as the poundians, although I still believe that there was something in my challenge that he is as much a great ventriloquist as anything else. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And here O'Driscoll is talking about uh, the, uh, the vocabulary of some of, uh, of some of Heaney's poetry, the insertion of dialect words. And he says, there's a line in your poem, Nerthus, for example, which says, where Kesh and loaning finger out to Heather. Did you expect non-Ulster readers to engage in some research? Or was it your hope that context and cadence would provide sufficient illumination of the meaning? And Heaney says, I don't think at all of the reader's problem. I didn't think at all of the reader's problem when I wrote the line. The joy was in solving my own writer's need. The word Nerthus, the Latin name of an earth goddess, was a big transmitter, and through it I could broadcast my own signal from the Dirachs. To my ear, the melody and cadence of the line had a rightness which banished any worries about the strange vocabulary. Kesh and loaning were of the language, and in the language, and so nihil obstat, as it were, imprimatur. And I like that especially because um, my wife and I went through a period where we looked up everything, uh, we tried to find every uh, mention of the uh, Iron Age goddess Nerthus in all of the books that we have in our house. And it's wonderful because uh, all you have, almost certain, is uh, uh, maybe half a page in uh, Tacitus's Germania, and uh, you can just find uh, whole extrapolations of what that paragraph is about and what the goddess meant. And um, so I like that Heaney takes uh, not just uh, ancient history, but specifically Nerthus as the example here, and that the idea of uh, using that word, that name, uh, communicating the energy in that name and in that line uh, that will probably last, that will probably continue to last longer than the names of prime ministers or presidents in our own day. Uh, um, I just enjoy that very much, that it happened to be Nerthus, just as it has been for me. Um, and O'Driscoll says, would you be reluctant to use dialect words which you know only from excuse me would you be reluctant to use dialect words which you know only from dictionaries and heaney says i would other poets broach the dictionary hoard and get great energy and exhibition from doing so but for me the point about dialect or hearth language is its complete propriety to the speaker and his or in his her his or her own voice and place what justifies it and gives it original juice and joy is intimacy and inevitability i've always confined my words i've always confined myself to words i myself could have heard spoken words i'd be able to use with familiarity in certain companies i've got this thick-witted obstinacy about doing otherwise. It's the corollary of my readiness to set down the name of a towner like Broch as if it were as familiar as the town of Troy. And here I think Heaney gets to 
perhaps why he will almost certainly last and other poets who are just as learned as he am, as he is uh, probably will not uh, the learning is natural and personal it comes out of his skin you might say it isn't uh, uh, an intellectual feat it isn't someone saying I'm going to go to the dictionary and see what weird words I can put into my poems or I'm going to uh, open a book at random and write a poem about some obscure topic. Uh, it comes out of his blood, as I said, and his skin almost. And it isn't a, and it isn't a clever thing to mention his own local landscapes. It just feels as necessary and familiar as mentioning the town of Troy. And just as an aside, um, when I wrote my own book of uh, poems about ancient Europe, um, I had the wonderful experience of getting an email from a friend of mine who had read the book uh, in draft and uh, said that he had spent uh, a lot of uh, great time searching Wikipedia and the internet for a lot of the places and the names used in the poems because uh, a lot of it is stuff that outside of archaeologists people might not know. And I never expected anyone to actually do that in the same way that Heaney doesn't either. Um, I almost expect that the energy of the words themselves, the, the mood of them, uh, or of what they describe, uh, will be enough. And that uh, a sort of dictionary to go alongside the poems is not necessary. But of course, if you do feel the need to do that, the, the poems will expand out even more and even more. Let me see here. Um, yes, here we are. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, a, a scene change now from the Band Valley to Silicon Valley, or at least to the college campus at Berkeley. You went as a guest lecturer to Berkeley for a year from 1970. How did this come about? Excuse <coughs> me. And Heaney says, sometime before that, I did a poetry reading at the University of York in England, where I met Tom Parkinson. Parkinson was a Yeats scholar a member of the English department at Berkeley, a friend of John Montague's, and I know he had heard something from Montague about me. He was on sabbatical just then, and it was through him that the invitation came to spend a year as a visiting lecturer. Exactly what I was ready for. It was exactly what I was ready for, so no hesitations whatsoever about accepting. I had a curiosity about the whole beat scene, and at the time the Bay Area was as hot politically as it was poetically. And here Heaney gives a great description uh, uh, just of being in California, um, and from very obviously not being from California himself. He says, something changed all right. The question is, were you challenged or changed by California? Heaney says, something changed all right. 
It was the first time we'd lived for any length of time outside Northern Ireland. This is Heaney and his wife and his children. Uh, the first time we lived, it was the first time we lived in the sun. The first time when pay was enough for us not to be always thinking about money. I was taller and freer in myself at the end of the year than at the beginning. And it wasn't just the waft of the climate or the waving of economic anxieties. It had to do with the intellectual distinction of the people around us, the nurture that came from new friendships and a vivid environment. There was genuine glamour and attainment about many people on the Berkeley faculty at the time. Mark Schorer, with his bow ties and East Coast cool, cock of the walk at his own cocktail parties. I met Jessica Mitford and Lillian Hellman at the Shorers and drank my first martini. Tom and Jean Flanagan, who were our best friends about the place, and at whose house we met Connor Cruz O'Brien, on campus for a few weeks while Connor gave the Regents lectures. Lenny Michaels, the short story writer who had just published his first collection, Going Places. I occasionally drove out with Marie and the kids to Marin County for breakfast to Sam's Cafe, a hamburger joint in Tiburon, California champagne and hamburgers, for God's sake, at eight o'clock in the morning, and Dad back on campus for work at nine, unimaginable at Queen's University, Belfast. And O'Driscoll asks him about the students. Again, Heaney says, again, different from Queen's, and how? This was the time when a freshman would ask if he wanted to be called Seamus or Professor, the time of the loose garment and the long hair, of pot in the air and sex on the waterbed, which were the other side of the draft card and the water cannon. I couldn't altogether expel the Irish Catholic in me, but he became a bit less uptight and became at home with a leather hat on his head and a short William Carlos Williamsy line in his ear. And I have a just a little marginal note next to all of this. And it says, uh, the Beatles, isolation, risk, and movement. Um, and I wanted to remind myself to say, as I have uh, on other occasions here, and actually with the Beatles in mind, um, you have John Lennon saying something like, uh, we weren't anybody important. We were just a band that made it very big, that's all. Um, and you have, for some reason, my, uh, my go-tos when I talk about this, uh, other than the Beatles, are someone like Bob Dylan, who uh, came to success almost immediately and has spent uh, basically his entire life, his entire career, uh, in the public eye, the good and the bad. Um, the ups and the downs. And in terms of poetry, uh, there's Robert Lowell, uh, who made a success very quickly. And when we talk about fame and success and renown and making a living um, of just being uh, sought after, it seems it seems that, how to put it? Well, what, what I meant uh, by the Beatles, for instance, putting the Beatles in the margins here, 
is that it would be very hard to imagine the Beatles in Liverpool uh, in the uh, early 60s uh, never having been discovered as they were and remaining a local group. It's very hard to imagine them uh, going where they did musically and culturally if they had just basically been a local act or even just a national act, Britain only. Um, so that it's so that if someone feels that uh, so and so has renown and success that they don't deserve, it's almost a snowball effect. By by being given one position, it can snowball into another and another and another. Whereas the person who was never given that first shot, no matter how well they write or paint or go into business, whatever it is that they're doing, um, they will never have the experience of, uh, I guess, of, of risking more than they ever would be able to otherwise, of meeting people by chance who would give them an opportunity they otherwise would never have been given. Um, it's all so very, I want to say unfair, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, but you can see it here with Heaney right away because he has this book, because he has this position, because he knew this person, this person knew someone at Berkeley, so he gets that. Um, and that is how it happens sometimes for those who are lucky enough to do it. Well, for those who are not so lucky, um, even that feels like uh, a huge event, uh, simply uh, one meeting and one new job. And uh, that just seemed to be a very good example of what chance and position, and I guess the the current word for it is privilege can get you, uh, whether or not you want to call it privilege or not. And there's a strange thing here. I've mentioned also how uh, uh, fluent Heaney was uh, at it with interviews, and it can, I guess it can strike, if you don't, if you're, if you're dead set at not liking his poetry, um, it's very easy to, I imagine, become suspicious at how well he talks about writing and about his life. And <clears throat> I came across this odd remark of his. Uh, he's talking about being in California and his uh, wife was mugged in Berkeley. And he says this about it. This is just part of it. Um, our kids had spent the afternoon with the Tracy kids, and Marie was going round to fetch them. Next thing, she was out for the count, flat on the pavement. And then it goes on to describe it, and it just seems an odd thing, uh, an odd way to say it about your own wife <laughs> being mugged. She was out for the count. Um, it's just an odd position to be in, uh, to, to be asked about that. And that just struck me as odd uh, that that is how he would put it. Here, here he's asked uh, more questions about what it was like in America. 
Um, are you saying that you had a detached attitude as to what was going on in America? And Heaney says, not exactly. It's more that I was starting to learn what it meant to be American. There was a thrust that things could be changed. The war machine and the capitalist pigs were held to be brutal and cynical, but the minds of the protesters were still infused with a belief in the reversibility of the situation. There was no tiredness, no real fear that the species was fallen, no European taking for granted that our understanding was dark and our will was weak. To put it another way, I couldn't imagine a poetry reading in Belfast directed simply and solely against the troubles. The poets and the audience in America, or the poets and the audience in Ireland, were too clued in to the complexity. We knew that we were all implicated. And that says something nice about uh, 1960s America. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, How much did California change your attitude toward the literary movements of the time? The Beats or the Black Mountain Poets, say. Seamus Heaney says, I bought and read, almost as if I was taking a course, books such as a William Carlos Williams reader and a Charles Olson reader. I devoted myself to Olson's essay on projective verse and to some of his Maximus poems. I had a determined go at the Orphic Duncan, Robert Duncan. I dabbled in Richard Brodigan and occasionally saw him in person at Enrico's Cafe on Broadway. But in the end, I held back. I just couldn't leave the gravitational pull of the poetry field that I knew. I couldn't slip the halter of the verse line and the stanza. I came to happy enough terms with William Carlos Williams, whose ear is actually very delicate, but I couldn't spread out and let go projectively. I think that's William Carlos Williams's term, isn't it? His projective verse, I can't remember. Um, at the same time, as I have often reported, <coughs> I did learn how to hear and respect Gary Snyder simply by listening to him read his own work. I began to see the disposition of the verse on the page as a musical notation of sorts, so that afterwards, when I opened a book of his, I had the sound of his voice in my ear. Here's a nice remark from Heaney about... Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, Can you still remember the week in May of 1969 when, as you've reported in earlier interviews, you wrote about 40 poems? Were they just trial pieces, or did some of them survive into published collections? And Heaney says, several of them appeared in Wintering Out, such as Limbo, Serenades, Veteran's Dream, Midnight, Navi, and Dawn. But a lot more saw the light of day just once, and spreads in the listener. I don't know how to explain that damn burst. It began with a hangover and continued with late nights and free days. This was in the month of May. Queen's University classes stopped around that time of year, or were about to stop. The day job, at any rate, wouldn't have been so pressing. 
It was a visitation, an onset, and as such powerfully confirming. This, you felt, was it. You had been initiated into the order of the inspired. Even though most of the poems didn't stand the critical test later on, the experience itself was crucial. From that point on, I felt different in myself as a writer. And O'Driscoll says, but did it not disappoint you, even dent your confidence, to leave so many poems uncollected? And I like that Heaney's response is this simple, not at all. The most important thing was sense of supply. And I would almost take a uh, fewer pages about Heaney's time in California and more pages about this. But I, uh, I would guess that Heaney, again, would not have much more to say about it than what he says here. Uh, it was crucial. It was about sense of supply. It was the uh, feeling of being uh, filled up almost. Um, and having had some experience of something like that myself, I uh, have to agree. It almost doesn't matter how much of it stays, uh, at least in my experience anyway. By the time you cut a poem from a collection, you don't really remember whether it was a part of a huge push or not. Uh, you just let it go. Um, and in the moment, when the moment is writing new poems, it almost doesn't matter what happens to them. What matters is that you uh, aren't staring at the wall. You are writing new poems. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, by the time Wintering Out appeared, you had moved from Belfast to County Wicklow whereas the book itself is deeply engaged with Ulster, Ulster places and issues. Had you any hesitation about moving south and what clinched it for you? And this sort of goes along with uh, how Heaney talks about what he did and didn't, what he did and did not write about politics, because here he is not, he's talking about when he uh, moved from Northern Ireland to uh, County Wicklow and uh, and what a change that meant for him. And this is what he has to say. Uh, this story has been told before, but only because it's true. When we came back to Belfast from Berkeley, I had a different relation to the place. My confidence in my chances as a writer had firmed up, and I'm referring as much to chances of making a living as to the chance of writing decent poems. For the first time, I realized I had options, partly because of the open invitation I'd received from the department chairman at Berkeley to return someday, partly because of a feeling that the work was being done was gaining purchase, not just on myself, but on the moment we were living through. I'd breathed and walked free in California, so when I got back, I envied people here who had managed to go it alone on the home ground. At that stage, Mary and I had begun to think we should move out from the city. The autumn after we returned, we would take these long evening drives to look for for sale signs along the roads in County Antrim and go hunting around places we knew in Derry and Tyrone. At the same time, as I touched on earlier, we often went down to 
County Kilkenny to visit Barry Cook and Sonia Landweir, who were living then in Thomastown, artists, neither of them holding a job, making a self-sufficient life for themselves, fishing, gardening, painting, doing ceramics. They represented an ideal, and so for a while we had a notion of moving to, to Kilkenny, since the area was full of arts and crafts people, musicians and so on, and seemed to offer a very conducive environment. Then about a page later, he says, the motive for the move that we finally took, as I've often said, was writerly. I knew that I was at a turning point, and I was helped to make the turn by the encouragement of Barry and Sonia, and also by Ted Hughes. What clinched it finally was Anne Saddlemeyer's offer of Glanmore Cottage early in 1972. Anne was in Toronto, but because of her research on John Millington Singh, she was back and forward to Ireland regularly. So when she heard that we were a bit footloose and looking for a place outside Belfast, she wrote to say that we could rent this gate lodge in Wicklow, and rent, I assure you, meant nominal rent. Down we went then, the whole family, at Easter, and loved the place, and when we came back I resigned my job. And O'Driscoll says, you did not agonize about the decision? And Heaney says, I was sleepwalking through these move, through those moves, and seemed to have, seemed to have a sleepwalker's remote control. Something in me had obviously been preparing for a change, and I was lucky that Marie was more than ready to go with the flow. In fact, she was very much in favor of leaving Belfast. And he says, I knew the apprenticeship was over. I had learned a lot in the ten years between November 1962, when I published my first poem in the Belfast Telegraph, and August of 1972, when we hired a van and shifted a certain amount of our belongings to Glanmore Cottage. And this is another example of what I was getting at before, that those who are lucky enough to find renown and success and notice uh, find it everywhere, not just for jobs, not just for, uh, in the case of writers, of reviews, whether uh, reviews of their own books or being offered the job of reviewing other people's books, but, but in this case of actual housing. Um, this is why it has struck me more and more lately that, um, uh, I mean, I, I can think of uh, a half a dozen writers that I know who had just as important a decade as Heaney did from November 1962 to August 1972 and who made a big move or who had a made a big move after a shorter amount of time and their story will never be asked about their story will never be known um, no one will ever know about it um, I've said before that uh, uh, between writing a long poem, a book-length poem myself, taking a break, uh, and then in early or in late 2013, uh, discovering poetry again and starting to write it again in a different mode. Um, throughout all of this, even, even back earlier than then and, and going forward from now, 
um, I feel a huge development going on. And I can say that about other writers as well, who have traversed these huge inner spaces of creativity. They found themselves again, uh, discovered themselves, remade themselves, um, but uh, no one will ever know about it because uh, they aren't Seamus Heaney or they aren't uh, whoever it is uh, that is in the news now. Um, and it's just something that strikes me uh, constantly uh, when reading about this stuff, which is sort of why I'm doing this podcast at the very least to uh, have the voice of this mostly unknown person out there uh, talking about these things to mostly unknown uh, people. Um, it's hard to imagine the other literary podcasts or literary shows on NPR doing anything like this, and that is both a curse, because I would never be invited on, uh, but also a blessing, because I can sort of do what I want here uh, until someone tells me otherwise. Uh, O'Driscoll says this, uh, did you know you'd have sufficient freelance work before you took the plunge? Did Marie have plans to resume teaching? And Heaney says, Horace says you can live well on a little. Our rent was a token rent and our outgoings were small. We did have a car, and we needed food and drink and heat and light, but, believe it or not, we had an appetite for the frugality. We'd both grown up in the country, so for us there was something rich and unstrange about bathing the kids by firelight, having them play around in the farmyard next door, giving them an experience of the dark country nights. It was more than nostalgic. It seemed right to supply them. Excuse me, it seemed right to supply them with memories of hedgebacks and hayfields and an open fire. We had worries, right enough, about how the arrangement would work when they came to secondary school age, but in the first years after we moved, the income from freelance radio and writing was fine, supplemented by occasional readings. Fees of around 25 pounds a time and one of those would pay the rent for a month. And you're right about the backup I had from the start. David Hammond commissioned me to do a series for BBC Schools, and then RTE gave me a weekly book reviewing program. I also inclined to do a bit more reviewing for the print journals. Carl Miller was still at the listener then. And then the very last thing from Wintering Out, um, Heaney is talking about, uh, <clears throat> let's see, Heaney is talking about uh, translating along uh, a poem from the, uh, I'm going to say ancient Irish, uh, the uh, medieval Irish, I guess is what, what you would say, um, and how he started it in the early 1970s. It was later published as Sweeney Astray. I think the title is, and uh, uh, Dennis O'Driscoll has a wonderful question here. I'm wondering to what extent Thomas Kinsella's uh, translation of the Toyn might have prompted your endeavor. 
You reviewed it in 1970 and saw it as, quote, clearly an effort to bring a literate Irish public into meaningful contact with its earliest literature, a conscious entry into the tradition of translators like Douglas Hyde and Lady Gregory. And he says, is this what you were trying to do with Sweeney Astray? And Heaney says, it wasn't in my head as a motto, but any translator of a big Irish language work can't help but be aware of those predecessors. Kinsella's example was very important, and I went so far as to report to him my intention of tackling Sweeney and got his encouragement, which felt as much like permission as encouragement, since he was, and to a large extent remains, the Lord of the Rants. And that takes care of my favorite bits of what Heaney had to say about his life during the time uh, of wintering out. Uh, over the next few days, I will start reading from the first real, not first, but uh, the, the breakthrough book for Heaney, which is North, from 1975. And then we'll no doubt spend a good deal of time reading his comments about those poems and his life during that time as well. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.